0: Um, And we're looking today at Acts chapter 6 verses 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel.
1: Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And it's, um, it's great to have you with us as we move through the book of Acts. And as we look at the story of the early church and what happened immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection... Um, And it's incredible to see the work that God did in His church then, but to remember that the same gospel is the same gospel that we believe in, and the Spirit who is at work in that church is at work in the church today. And so it's it's great to be able to dive into this text. Now just to um, double back on something Jacob was speaking about before, Alpha on Monday night was a great night. It's not too late if you've got friends and family who think they could really benefit from this or this would be a great space for them to investigate Christianity. Week two, which is on the question of who is Jesus and particularly whether there's any historical evidence on who he was and the claims he made, that's the week tomorrow night and it's a great week to jump in. So it's not too late to invite people along. We'd love to have you be a part of that. But I'm going to pray just before we open this text this morning because what we're going to see from the story of Stephen is that courage comes from grace and power and grace and power come from Jesus. And so if we're called to be a courageous people, it comes through experiencing grace and power through Jesus. So I'm going to pray that that's the impact that he would have on his church today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a loving God, that you are the eternal God, the maker of heaven and earth, the author of life. And yet you are the one who emboldens and empowers us a sinful and broken people and that by your grace you strengthen us to do things that in our own strength we couldn't do to witness to the gospel and to live lives for the glory of christ and father we just pray that as we consider just how much you have loved us through jesus that it might move us to be people like stephen like others in your early church and like those who are witnessing to christ all around the world today we'd be courageous for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, I don't think there's ever been a time when we weren't worried about teenage boys. It's more that we're just kind of like, all right, what are they up to now? But one of the things that's been uh, a bit of a concern was probably the last couple of years is the impact that, I don't know, I don't know what you, you call the group now, maybe it's kind of modern day pickup artist type alpha male influencers are having on young men. And the concern is that, um, that they're putting forward deplorable views about women and about life and aggression and all these things, and it's getting real traction with young men. And so people are kind of fighting with one another about what the reason for this is. Is it because we have all this talk about toxic masculinity? It's pushing them into the arms of these influencers. Is it because they don't have enough role models? All this kind of stuff around what the causes would possibly be. But I think if you boil it down, I think teenage boys, and maybe even men generally, have one primary fear that carries through high school, and it's the fear of powerlessness. The teenage boys are afraid of being powerless and the humiliation that would come with that. And so what they're looking for is what is generally a virtue, which is courage. They want to see how is it that I can be someone who is fearless. And so they look at these guys and they think, man, they don't care what anyone thinks. They seem powerful and influential and unafraid. And so they imitate them thinking that this is where they're going to find courage. But what they don't realize is that anger is counterfeit courage. That anger can overcome fear for a time, but it really isn't courage. It's a counterfeit. And the the reason that they're so impacted by it is that often they're too young to see it. Probably the best illustration of this I heard recently was this. When 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 you have a two or three-year-old and they see the wiggles, they think that that is the best possible version of being an adult that there could be. They look at them, they think they're fun, they've got it all together. When I grow up, I want to be a wiggle. They don't realize that us grown-ups, the maturity doesn't look like that. Fine for them to do that, but as a kid, you don't realize that's not what growing up actually looks like. And the comment was that teenage boys don't, don't realize, they don't have the maturity to look at these guys and realize that's not growing up. That's not maturity. And to act like that into adulthood doesn't lead to thriving. It leads to causing suffering around you. It leads to more suffering for other people, and it usually leads to men who are angry and alone. Now, it's counterfeit courage. What we're going to see in this story is God working through one man in particular, and he brings about in him an incredible courage, real courage, a willingness to stand for what's right and a willingness to suffer for it. And the focus isn't on this person, but on the grace of God toward him. And the focus again and again in the book of Acts is not that these people were incredible people, but they were just ordinary people who followed an extraordinary God and who experienced grace and transformation that turned their lives around. And we see that even from the first sentence of the story as it kicks off in 6 verse 8. Look at what we read in the opening sentence. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We were introduced to Stephen last week in the story uh, that Jacob actually went through in the early part of Act 6. And Stephen was one of the men appointed to look after this kind of charity that the church had organized for widows that was distributing food to widows. Now the two most vulnerable groups in the ancient Near East were widows and orphans. And for widows, often it was the case that if they had lost their husband, they'd lost the main source of income and protection in an ancient world where the main form of work was physical labor. And so they were extremely vulnerable, and so the church was stepping in here to look after them. But we're told that there was a tension that arose in the church. We're told that the Hellenistic Jews, those widows, were being neglected for the sake of the Hebraic Jews. Now, if that doesn't make much sense to you in terms of groups or why that would be a problem, Basically, the Jewish people were those who had lived in Israel, and so they were kind of you know, Hebraic Jews, and those who were called Hellenistic Jews or Greek Jews were ones who had lived elsewhere in the Roman Empire. They spoke Greek as their main language, but they'd moved back to kind of you know, the, main, the motherland to live as Jewish people. And the concern is that through this distribution, one racial group is being preferenced over another. And the leaders of the church hear this complaint, and they don't... What I love about it is how they respond. They don't, they don't kind of stand there self-justifying or be like, well, it was an accident or we don't know what happened. No, they're just like, this isn't right. It shouldn't be the case that one group is being preferenced over another. We need to sort it out. And so their solution is, look, the apostles need to keep preaching the gospel, but they appoint these guys to serve these tables and to make sure the distribution happens correctly. And Stephen is one of them. And a bunch of the others with him have Greek-sounding names, probably because they're Hellenistic Jews themselves, meaning that they're most likely to make sure that the Hellenistic women, widows, are not overlooked. And he's described in the passage of being full of the Spirit and wisdom, and here being full of grace and power. So it's clear that God, by his Holy Spirit, is working in a really powerful way in Stephen's life. It's not that he's just this extraordinary person, but that as he's come to know Jesus... And as the Spirit has done a work in his heart and life, it's transformed him. And it's by God's grace that Stephen is wise and loving, and it's by God's power that he's doing these things. And with this, Luke is careful to draw our minds to the source of all this, that it's God who's bringing all of this about. When women and men of God do extraordinary things in God's name, we need to be careful not to praise them as though they're ultimately responsible. Like it's their own goodness. And this can prevent us from the mistake of thinking like, well, really, there are just kind of extraordinary people that are a part of the kingdom and I could never be like that. Or in the other instance, for those who experience God's grace and power work through them in mighty ways to take credit for it. Now, neither is the case. It prevents pride in leaders and in us. Luke is clear here that the reason this is happening is because God is, is at work. And this is what happens when God is at work in his people. And so with that... Attention arises. Look at what happens in Acts six nine to eleven. It says then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrophenes, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen has been serving Hellenistic widows. And it draws the attention of the Hellenistic synagogue. We're told here that this is a different group from last week, that the tensions were with, or sorry, the week before with the Sadducees. This is a group called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And the reason they're called that is that they were descendants of Jews who were enslaved by a Roman general called Pompey in 63 BC. And they've since been emancipated. And so they've formed their own synagogue. And these are one of the groups that have a problem with Stephen. And we're told that along with that, there's groups from different ethnicities, Cyreneans, Alexandrians from North Africa, Cilicia and Asia. But here, they they hear about Stephen and they want to argue with him. And they want to argue about Jesus. And as they come to confront him, they realize that they can't out-argue him. That as they come to bring these accusations to him, he argues them down and they find themselves frustrated. Remember, we were told earlier that he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom, that he's able to speak with such wisdom that they can't refuse what he's actually saying. And because they're mature adults, they say, well, his arguments are sound and fair, and it seems like we've been mistaken about him and about Jesus the whole time. Stephen, we were wrong about you and Jesus. Please tell us more. No, that's not how they respond. Look what they do instead. In Acts 6, 11, we read this. We'll destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Everyone is hysterical about council culture these days like it's a new thing. But it's an age-old strategy of human nature, isn't it? When you can't defeat someone's argument, you will use any means necessary to shut them up. Immaturity is as old as humankind. We don't like it when someone shows us that we're wrong. And we usually, instead of responding with humility and repentance, we double down on our position and we want to silence the person who's upset us. And so they bring, instead of speaking to him and arguing with him, they bring false witnesses against him. That's what they choose to do. They bring false witnesses to come and say that he's been doing certain things or saying certain things that he should be arrested for. And the charge brought to him is twofold. We're told here that it's about Jesus and it's about the temple. We're told that he's in trouble because he's been saying these things about Jesus of Nazareth and they're not happy about that. And we're told that he's said that actually the temple, this holy place that they revere that's so important to their culture, that he's been speaking against it. And so they bring these accusations before him. They arrest him and they bring him before the council. And yet Stephen stands there fearless. And Did you see what it said at the end of this passage? It said, "And he had a f- his. It was like his face was like the face of an angel. He's beautiful, <laughs> as if he needed any more on his resume." I feel like the description of Stephen here is like an ancient Near Eastern like Captain America. He's like. He looks after widows, he's super smart, no one can argue him down, he's fearless and he stands for the truth. And he's like they look at him he's like, oh, he's got the face of an angel and they're so mad about it, they just want to punch him in his beautiful face, right? He's just like, he stands in complete opposition to these angry men around him. But the contrast here isn't of this extraordinary man, no, actually it's of God's work through him. And the contrast here is between his courage that's brought about by the grace and power of God and the cowardice of the men who are dragging him before trial. See, here's the thing about courage courage is not being willing to kill, but being willing to suffer or even die for the good of others. And that's a common mistake. I don't know if you saw the movie many years ago called Hacksaw Ridge, but it was a war movie. And it was uh, kind of like a biopic, fictionalized biopic, of the life of Desmond Doss, who I think uh, won some kind of like a a medallion for, for valor or whatever, or courage under fire. But the story is kind of an interesting one when it comes to war stories because it starts with a character who's called a conscientious objector. And in fact, this movie was based on the documentary called Conscientious Objector. And the reason for it is that Desmond Doss, as a Christian man, had come to the conviction that it was wrong to kill in any circumstances. In fact, he wouldn't even touch or pick up a rifle. And conscientious objectors, if you know anything about them during those, the great wars, was that people despise them. Because it's like, hey, look at all these guys who have to go off to war, and you, just because apparently you're so moral, stay behind and don't. And so often they'd be in prison for refusing to be conscripted and that sort of thing, but also they'll particularly look down on as cowards. But the unique thing about his story is he signed up to go to war, but not as an infantryman, but as a medic. And the, the, the movie kind of depicts, and I don't know how accurately, but his time kind of in training camp and then on his way to his first kind of, you know, conflict that he was actually to be a part of. And the people around him just despise him. They think, what a coward. How is it that this guy, w- w- and why would he be tr- you know, signing up for war when he's not even willing to even pick up a rifle? And the belief is that unlike the rest of them, that he is a coward. And when someone confronts him and says, look, if you believe all this stuff about pacifism, why are you joining the army and why are you going to be a part of a conflict? And he says this, he says, with the world set on tearing itself apart, it don't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. And so his desire as a medic was not self-preservation, but that he was lay his life down to in some way help or to put something of this world that was tearing itself apart back together. And the story goes that when it came to an actual battle, that rather than being the most cowardly of them all, that he was the most fearless, that he was the one that kept going out and retrieving men, even while everyone had retreated behind the trenches to cover from fire, That he was the one who continued to risk his life to save others time and time and time again. And the story ends with everyone being shocked by the sheer courage that he had. That rather than being more cowardly than all of them, he demonstrated that he himself was more courageous, more fearless than any of them. See, true courage is not a willingness to kill, but a willingness to die or even suffer for the good of others. And Stephen has been so transformed by the grace of Jesus who came and suffered for those who were unwilling to worship him, for those who were sinners. He is so transformed by this gospel that it moves him to live in the same way. And so here when he responds, his response is full of grace and power. As as these false charges are brought against him, as this council gathers together to murder him, instead he responds with grace and power. Look what he says at the opening of his speech. Says, and Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This is how he opens his speech, respectfully. He calls them brothers and fathers. He starts with the common ground that he has with them. He starts with Abraham, a biblical figure that they can all agree on. He doesn't get up and rail about the false charges brought against him. He calls them brothers and fathers and he says, Look, just, just start with me at a starting point, which is what we both say we believe, that the Bible is true and that Abraham was one of God's people. And then he goes on to lay out subtly his defense against these charges. The charges that he's preaching Jesus and that that's a problem and the charge that he is speaking against the temple. And he starts by going through the whole story of the Bible, and this is the longest recorded speech in Acts. And we're not going to read through all of it, just in case (laughs) you're like, oh gosh, what's the time already? But it is the longest speech that we get in the book of Acts because it covers in many ways the theology of the early church and how they're related to the first half of the Bible called the Old Testament. And he starts first by subtly justifying the fact that even though Jesus was rejected by supposedly God's people, that this is a pattern that has happened throughout the history of Israel. He starts with Joseph. In seven nine. he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Joseph is one of the heroes of the Bible. And here Stephen outlines that, look, even though he was God's appointed leader, it was people who claimed to be God's people who rejected him, who sold him even into slavery. And he goes on, it wasn't just Joseph. He speaks about Moses. In 7.35 he says, this moses whom they rejected saying who made you a ruler and a judge this man god sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him so stephen's point is this he's saying to them if you have this big problem with jesus just know that throughout the history of the bible throughout god's long story of redemption that it's often been the case that god's appointed leader has been rejected by the very people he was sent to save and that it's still the case through Jesus. And then he goes on to make his second point, which is about the temple. In Acts 7:48 to 50, he says, "Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. "Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool." What kind of house will you build for me?" says the Lord, Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things?" Stephen is making the point that even in the very scriptures that he is quoting, the scriptures that these men in front of him claim to believe as well, he says we're told here that God doesn't dwell only in the temple. That here it's not his permanent dwelling place. The temple itself is not God. And so he says, though I've carried through the teachings of Jesus, I'm not telling you anything new or anything different from what the Bible already says. This is nothing beyond what scripture says. And now that he's done with the charges that have come against him, now he adds something new. And in case you're thinking this is all a bit subtle and maybe even verging on cowardice, this is the point at which Stephen turns and goes in. Look at what he says in Acts 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And this is Stephen's reply. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Tell us what you really think, Stephen. He absolutely unloads here. And here he's not saying it to be malicious or vicious or anything like that. He's being direct with them. He says there is a history in the story of the Bible of people rejecting God's appointed leader. And he says, you who come here claiming to believe the Bible, you who believe the Ten Commandments that says do not bear false witness have brought false witnesses against me. You who say you are the people of God, he says you are the ones who put the Son of God to death. You are the ones who betrayed and murdered him. And he's direct with them. And after this, they decide that they've heard enough and tragedy strikes. In Acts 7.54 we read, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. This story every time gets me. They can't argue with him. They can't argue from Scripture on their own terms against him. And they can't handle it, so they become enraged. And while they're doing this, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven and is given a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he sees his Savior, Jesus Christ, master over sin and death. And in this moment, in the midst of a violent death, where wicked men, are putting him to death. He prays. And he even prays for them. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. I mean, imagine the courage of that, of, of facing a wicked and evil, and unjust death and praying for those who are doing it. Stephen is so captured by the gospel that even in his death he is like his saviour the one who was crucified for the ones who were crucifying him and called out, Father, forgive them. He's so captured by his vision of Jesus and of how good Christ is and of how much he has been loved and how much grace he has experienced through Jesus that even in his last moment, he's moved to forgive like his Savior. And you just think, man, the courage and the power of this guy and the witness to die like that. And how does this happen? It goes right back to the first sentence that we read. In 6.8 it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is not extraordinary. He's just a guy. And Stephen was not doing anything other than following his king. Jesus, who was unafraid of opposition and spoke the truth, unintimidated. Jesus, who was tried unjustly and beaten. Jesus, who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus, who when he died, prayed, Father, forgive them. Jesus is the reason for it. Stephen has experienced his grace and his Holy Spirit working powerfully through him and it leads him to witness in this way. And it has led to a long history of followers of Christ in many ways dying in the same way. There's a story of Uh, the the bishop of Smyrna called Polycarp, who in the mid-2nd century, towards the end of his life, um, faced persecution. And though he'd managed for a couple of years to escape it, was finally arrested and brought to trial. And the governor of the region had commanded him to deny Christ and promised that if he did deny Christ, that he would be set free and no punishments would be upon him. And the recorded answer that we have from him in church history is this, that he replied by saying, 86 years have I served Jesus, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my King and Savior? And he died for Christ. You hear the sentiment of what he said. Just knowing the grace of Jesus, he's like, how could I, with my last words, blaspheme him? or deny that Jesus really is the Christ, or deny that Jesus really is that good. This is the impact that the gospel has on lives. That as the Spirit works through God's word, as we understand the grace of the gospel, it transforms us. And so if you're here and a follower of Christ, and at the moment you feel like your faith is lacking fervor and courage, can I encourage you just to get a glimpse of God's goodness and glory, of the goodness and glory of Jesus, that it might move you to live with courage and fervor for your king? Do you know what's the case? You've probably heard these kind of stories before, but it's often the case that are, uh, and so, you know, it may be a myth, but I'm pretty sure this is like this is accurate, but that people in extraordinary moments when they're looking to save like their own kids or something like that can do extraordinary things like, I don't know. Lift a car might be a bit extreme. But you know know what I mean? Like kind of extraordinary feats of strength that seem beyond that person's physical capabilities. And the reason for it is, if they just sat around thinking about their own personal capabilities and strengths, they probably wouldn't do anything. But when they see the need like that, it moves them so suddenly and shockingly to do something that they kind of do something that's almost beyond themselves. In the same way, when God's people get a glimpse of the truth and goodness of who Jesus is, it moves them to live extraordinary lives of generosity and grace. It moves His people to love like Christ and to do things that are no credit to them but a credit to the Savior who, has, who laid down His life for them. And so if you are feeling like your faith at the moment is just a little anemic and kind of limping along, I encourage you to dive into God's Word and to behold Him as He is and to pray that His Spirit would give you power to see Christ as he really is. Robert Murray McShane says this, and I'll finish with this, on the source of of really of what it means to be a Christian and to live wholeheartedly for Christ. He says this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and for all sinners, even the chief of them. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, for, all, for his all-seeing eye is settled on you in love. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, so that there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. May we, like his people always have, look to Christ and empowered by his Spirit, be moved to live lives for him. Let's pray. Father God, we marvel at the works that you have done in your creation, but also through your church. How you have moved in the extraordinary witness of your people, as ordinary men and women have done extraordinary things in standing for the gospel and in living for Christ. And so, Father, we pray that our desire and our heart would be to see Jesus. It seemed clearly that it might transform us. That we, like Stephen, might be moved by grace and power to love you and to live lives that glorify you. And Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.